Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your far future weird fiction, middle ages, speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So, all right, uh, another extra episode that you uh, did not know was coming, and this time we're doing something really different. Uh, There's something that I hope we will do more of in the future, and that is to talk about a role-playing game. The game is Numenera. It's a science fantasy game developed by Monty Cook and his company, Monty Cook Games. I wish we'd named Clay Temple Media after me. I should have done that. Uh, There are (laughs) two editions of the game, the first from 2013 and then a revision from 2018. And it's that revision that we'll uh, be using today. And I keep saying we because I am joined today by Brandon Buddha, who is my co-host on Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, as well as the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, and who has also been here before, back when we did Ship of Fools by Richard Paul Russo. So welcome back to ATOS, Brandon. Oh, thanks. It's good to be back. I'm I'm really excited to talk about Numenera. This is a game that uh, you and myself and our and our other friend were able to run three adventures on. Uh, it's a great system, and I'm happy to be here and and talk about our experience with it and also the game itself. Yeah, it actually feels a little bit nostalgic to me. We we ran this on the uh, initial. Uh, we ran this under the the original publication, so it was kind of fun to pick up the the new one and go through it and see what some of the the changes were. And it sort of felt to me like that was something we had done. I don't know, last week, maybe last year, something like that. Not literally like five, six years ago. Actually. I know. <laughs> so I uh, really uh, got some nostalgia going for me. Well, the reason that we are here. Doing this extra episode is that it was commissioned by one of our listeners. These commissioned episodes are extra episodes that listeners, usually Patreon supporters, pay us, hire us to do. And uh, that is what happened here. And we're very grateful for that. I just want to say thank you so much to the Patreon supporter who asked us to do this. Yeah, big thanks to our supporters who commissioned us to do episodes. It's such a pleasure for us, as, as we say every time. And it was a uh, real joy, as Glenn said, to revisit Numenera. And kind of have that sense of nostalgia. And and it is hard to believe it's been five years or so since we've played this. But yeah, just to echo your thanks, Glenn, this is always a surprise and a pleasure to be commissioned to do something that uh, is close to our hearts in some way that our listeners couldn't have possibly known about. Yeah, close to our hearts, but also kind of outside of our wheelhouse. It's outside of what we normally do. And of course, that is part of the joy of these commissioned episodes. I mean, we like the commissioned episodes that are do the same thing you normally do, but about the thing I like. We love those too. But these episodes that ask us to cover a type of material that we haven't done before are a, a, a lot of fun. They're, they're fun of a different sort, I suppose. It's a challenge there. So we had to think of how should we approach this topic? So let me run through, let me run listeners through what the episode plan is. So we are going to talk about Numenera as literature rather than as a game. And what I mean by that is that we're going to talk about the setting. We're going to talk about the world building. We'll think about characters, right? the types of characters you can create and what types of stories you can tell with those characters. And then we'll take a look at one of the adventures that comes with the core book. But what we're not going to do is talk about game mechanics. I mean, we might do that a little bit with the the characters and when we get to the adventure a little bit. But gameplay is not going to be our focus here. Storytelling is what we're here to do. And we'll just start with an overview of the, the game. We'll go back and forth here. And the first thing we really need to do is talk about what genre Numenera is. I said at the top of the show that it is a far future science fantasy game, and that is true. And it's got a late medieval flavor. We'll talk more about that. And uh, I'll talk about some of that with my medieval historian hat on as well. 
The game does take place on Earth in the far future. It's about a billion years in the future, but it is an Earth that is reshaped and unrecognizable. And some of this is simply because of change over that massive amount of time. But most of this has been purposefully done. Most of the change has been intentional. Uh, It's something that's been done by civilizations of the past. And Brandon's going to talk more about that in just a minute. The other part of the setting that we need to talk about is that it's got this technology as magic idea. And the gameplay really centers around this. The the, the magic that people have really is the technological detritus of past civilizations still acting on and also acting in the the world. And There are really two big strands here that Monty Cook draws on for this game. One of them is Jack Vance, uh, whose Dying Earth stories we have covered on Elder Sign, or continuing to cover on Elder Sign, uh, and whose other works we will eventually cover on on ATOS. I've already recorded some of those episodes. And his Dying Earth setting is really probably the most important of the the ideas of the sort of far future fantasy-type stories. And Jack Vance, massively important to the invention of Dungeons & Dragons, I mean, the magic system, and even some of the storytelling really owes a lot to Jack Vance. So those are sort of two ways that his fingerprints are here on Numenera. But I think once we get into the specifics, I think we're going to see a lot more of Gene Wolfe here. And Monty Cook does credit Gene Wolfe in the introduction to the book. And in fact, I think he took Gene Wolfe's Clarion Workshop as well. And so really talks about how much of a massive influence Gene Wolfe was on him just as a writer generically, but also on Numenera as a setting. And hey, we do a whole podcast devoted to Gene Wolfe. So we might have some things to say about that as we go. That's right. The Gene Wolfe influence, I think, was massive for Monty Cook. And and I think he extrapolated out from there in terms of influences. There are other ones that, that surprised me on this list uh, in the Appendix B of this book, which are the nonfiction, fiction, and film references that Monty Cook was using. I will say that this game system has also been turned into um, a video game called Tides of Numenera, which is pretty fun. I've played a, a good chunk of it. It's it's an isometric CRPG, and it is... Um, it's very much a visual novel in a lot of ways. There's not really a big combat system. It's more about unfolding the story. And I think that that is also baked into the mechanics of this game as well. The reason why people would play this game is because they're interested in the world and telling stories in a world like this. Uh, and and maybe only secondly, because they love to roll dice with their friends <laughs> so I, I i found that but one i'm going to bring up in a minute one of the other influences is the uh film stalker which was an andre tarkovsky film uh that was made during the soviet reign in russia based on a pair of pseudo revolutionary science fiction writers called the strugatsky brothers and that book was called roadside picnic uh, that is also a major influence on the game mechanics and thought process of the way technology works in this game. But in terms of the history of this world, that is really rooted in the Book of the New Sun or Gene Wolfe's iteration on the dying earth concept. And so the recorded history of this world is only 900 years old, though people know that there have been nine major times when humanity has restarted itself or an intelligent species has restarted its 
whole culture, its whole civilization on Earth. So, so Numenera is also known as the Ninth World. And while in Book of the New Sun, Gene Wolfe doesn't go into that, the detritus of the past is treated as marvels and unknowable magic in a sense how do these machines function how do these machines function what were they for and they're treated as magic and we see that in this game too where this is the ninth world where people's people are living in a, in an essentially agrarian society with only 900 years of recorded history of their civilization trying to understand what all this stuff is that's in their world. And that's the roadside picnic element where the stuff from the past or the stuff from another civilization is left behind and discarded and its original use is unknown, but it has massive impacts on the way people live their lives in the contemporary culture that they're a part of. So I love what Monty Cook is doing here by combining these ideas. Uh, we also learn in terms of the history of this world that many people in the last worlds were not human per se, um, but the history of this world really began, the recorded history, when scholars organized themselves and eventually turned into an order run by a person called the Amber Pope called the Order of Truth, and it's uh, these scholars became known as priests. They're the Aeon priests. And this fully formalized itself about 400 years in the past, this order of truth. And so what they're doing is some recorded history of their time, though not something that I think would benefit any future historian who's looking at the records of the order of truth or the Aeon priests, because their project is really focused on uncovering the meaning of the deep past that created the world they live in now. Where did the machines come from? What are their impacts? How do they function? What were the worlds like before? And how can they use these old technologies slash magic to understand the past world and make sense of the cur current one? And these past worlds include things like spacefaring civilizations, uh, you know, faster than light travel, you know, all the sorts of stuff that you find in, in space operas and science fiction novels. As you said, Glenn, this world is one billion years in our future. The sun has mysteriously not burned out and everything is fine. This is not a dying Earth. And that's because perhaps some past civilization was able to find a way to restart or sustain the sun or maybe even bring a new sun into our solar system using these lost technologies. And in terms of the cosmology, briefly, like Mercury is gone. So all the planets aren't there. And the solar system is really just different than what we think of today. Yeah, this uh, this business of the new sun, right? Why the sun should be red, should be dying, but it isn't thanks to somebody doing something. I mean, this is a, a real nod. This is a direct allusion to Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. Uh, and there are, I mean, there are lots of allusions to Gene Wolfe's, uh, not, maybe not his entire corpus, but much of it throughout. But there are some real specific uh, sort of humorous points where Monty Cook throws in some bits of The Book of the New Sun here. And there, there's at least two more that I'm going to bring up when we start talking about the, uh, the regions as we go through the sort of gazetteer of this world. And, and just as a final note of the history, 400 years ago is really when the culture or civilization coalesced. So there are a few large kingdoms. There's one in particular that we're going to be talking about as a setting in this episode. And civilization now resides on a large supercontinent like Pangaea. The land masses have kind of all crashed together once again. 
So that that's basically the history of Numenera. That's the setting that your characters are going to be a part of, and the store and the place where all the stories are going to happen. And I really love the ideas that Monty Cook has here when he's telling us about the the eight previous civilizations, right? The eight worlds prior to this ninth world, because he, he doesn't give anything truly definitive here. He gives a list that says at least one civilization was like X, some civilizations Y, but he allows for, well, two things, I guess. One, for him and his his team to make up things later, you know, in, in other adventure packs or other other books. That's just good role-playing game business sense there, but also just to, to give that over to us, the players, uh, and to 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 expand the world as we want to, to invent what those civilizations were for the adventures that we might want to write ourselves and set in this world. But he's got some really cool ideas, and one that I found really exciting, you kind of alluded to this, Brandon, is he says at least one of those previous civilizations was the center of a galactic spacefaring civilization. So not just a part of one, but the center of one, right? This idea of, of Earth as the capital of the entire galaxy for you know, who knows how, how long, you know, the civilization that lasted thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, but which to us would seem to be inconceivably far in the future, but is for these people inconceivably far in the past. And it, he really breathes that into into the, the setting here. And it's awesome. Right. I mean, he's saying the Federation of Planets headquarters was on Earth or something like that. But I love the way that he uses, as you pointed out, these sort of logical qualifiers, at least one, at least some of these civilizations when he's describing what the past was. It also allows for like a a Venn diagram where you can say that one of the past worlds had three of these uh, three of these elements all at once. And you can imagine the work of a far future historian with a sort of uh, medieval sense of scholarship or history. They don't have advanced dating techniques and maybe they don't know about how layers of earth are uh, separating periods of time or the way that one of the features of this world, the Iron Wind, can change a landscape, it's going to be hard to date anything. And so you can get a sense that the type of work that the Aeon Priests and the Order of Truth is doing are really not working with a full deck or a full tool set that we have today when we think about how to date past civilizations or past technologies or the you know pot shards that, that we might dig up <laughs> uh, that indicate what people ate with. It's like they can't make those distinctions. So that's also a part of it is this kind of blended history of the past that y- you get to see the overlap maybe, but we don't know. They might find something, a technology that is on the same level in terms of time as something that, you know, or the, the levels of the earth and digging it up or attempting an archaeological excavation. It, it's totally plausible in the way that this world is described that something found, two objects found could be a million years apart, but there's really no way of knowing. And I and I just love that sort of, I love the sense of mystery that that imbues with uh, these objects and the magic of this world. You have essentially, you've, you've outlined a pretty awesome idea for a story right there, right? Just envisioning a, an archaeological ex- excavation that's looking at two things that, that s- don't seem like they should 
go together, but clearly do. So something is wrong with either the way we're understanding the site or something crazy was going on in the past. And, you know, that's a good hook. That's a good premise for a story. And, you know, something will have to happen to something will have to happen to make solving that puzzle uh, the solution to something that has higher stakes than that. Although I would, of course, always read a story that's just about scholars solving problems for themselves, you know, for like the five other people who work in their field. But, you know, you'd want to have some kind of world ending stakes or some local ending stakes or something like that, that solving this problem will really matter. But those are the types of stories that Numenera is for. Well, let's turn our attention to the human societies of this present world, the the ninth world, as Monty Cook calls it. And I'm going to run through what the human societies are like in the game, really just to give a, a feel for it. Though this is an area where I have some criticisms that I'm going to want to raise as well. Uh, largely, I'll do this with my history professor hat on, but also I think a little bit with my writer hat on. Though, of course, I love this game. I love this setting. I mean, they're, they're, so the criticisms are really just to spawn conversations and to get us to think about world building, to, to talk about uh, to talk about how to create worlds and what makes them feel uh, real and feel lived in for us. So let's talk about the the species that inhabit this planet first, because as Brandon said, not all of the eight previous civilizations were human. But still, the, the default for this game is Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens who are more or less just like we are today. But that's kind of weird, right? Why do Homo sapiens still exist at all a billion years in the future, and especially after at least one space alien civilization was running the planet, as we're, we're, we're told in that the list that he gives us? And I will say these are Cook's own questions, and the fact that he has those questions in here, right? Each of them has a really great epic campaign at the heart, right? Like figuring out the answers to these questions could be a campaign you could run with players over the course of years, right? To figure out why are Homo sapiens still here? Where did we come from? And how did the Ninth World get started? I mean, that would be a lot of fun to do a game like that. Uh, there are also descendants of genetically modified Homo sapiens. There are biotech people. Uh, there are some space aliens or, or people who are the descendants of space aliens. They might themselves not necessarily know that, but they are the descendants of space aliens. Uh, that they're called visitants here in the book. And then there are abhumans, uh, savage, bestial people who are uh, part Homo sapiens, part other things. We get these in some of the uh, encounters, and some of the some of the adventures that are in the back of the book, and some of the encounter hooks that we encounter uh, throughout the the world building section of the book. And they mostly appear as as beast men, more or less humans slash you know insert interesting animal there. Uh, it was not really entirely clear to me in what way the abhumans differ from the descendants of genetically modified Homo sapiens, though, Brandon. I, I wondered if you had some thoughts about that. I kind of just read the abhumans as humans. Like, if you wanted to do something cosmetic with your character, have them treated a separate way uh, in this game in, in terms of differentiating your character from a generic D&D class, which this game really does lean into the D&D class tropes, you can use an abhuman instead of a human character that might make you something like, uh, you know, more like a dwarf or an elf or whatever, something like that, that comes from a primitive culture or, uh, you know, something from the cave system or, so, or just something along those lines that allow you to cosmetically conform your character to something that you'd find more in other role-playing adventures that maybe you're used to. And Monty Kulk was a big writer for Dungeons & Dragons, so he really knows his audience here and is allowing for the cosmetic or racial um, 
differentiation or creation of characters by this inclusion of ab humans. That that's kind of how I read it. Yeah, I think that that's fair, though. I think that that is probably what he has in mind for the visitants and the descendants of the modified Homo sapiens, because I guess I thought that the abhumans were really just uh, like goblins. They're, they, right. They're, they're not something that you would play right. as a player character, but I suppose you could. And that is one of the brilliant things that he does with this game is that there is no race section here in this game, right? You don't learn what elves are, dwarves are, gnomes or halflings or uh, whatever has been invented for one particular D&D setting or another particular D&D setting. He just leaves it up to us to, to make up and really encourages players to envision something and then present it to their game master and say, I just would like a character that has these particular physiological features for, you know, whatever reasons I might want those physiological features that would lend, that would lend to this type of interesting storytelling. What do you think about that? Right. So it's really malleable the way that he presents this, which I think is a, a brilliant way to do it. And he also doesn't fall into the pitfalls of representing races like elves or orcs or whatever of he he's not allowing these characters or players to map racial stereotypes of our own society onto the game or the game system is not encouraging that sort of um, mapping of reality that Dungeons and Dragons has occasionally fall uh, afoul of in its critiques as a gaming system. So I think that that's another move that Monty Cook has made is that the players are so in control of the type of characters that they made that they've made, but he's not saying you have to map it onto something that's clearly rooted in some sort of analog for our own world that, as I said, Dungeons and Dragons has been criticized for in the past. And rightfully so. And in fact, as we're recording this, Dungeons and Dragons has announced that they are going to be taking a hard look at that. And uh, I'm excited to see what they do with that. In fact, that might actually be something that would be worth doing an episode on when they are are done revising the way that D&D handles race. And one of the other things that Monty Cook does here that I, I guess maybe I actually don't like, though I think it goes hand in hand with, with this, and, and we're definitely presenting that as a positive as I, I think it is, but there's not actually a lot in this book about culture at all. And there does not really seem to be a whole lot of cultural diversity. As you said, when you were going through the history section, Brandon, that we are talking about only one region of this supercontinent, this one region of this new Pangaea. And we don't really even know what percentage of it it is. It does maybe seem like it's about a quarter of the planet, something like that. But there seems to be a lot of cultural homogeneity here. Uh, there is a language that is a near universal language. Uh, and this is called called the language of truth. I mean, that's that's capitalized. It's a proper noun, truth. But this is the language that is used by the Eon priests, by the, the Amber Pope. We'll talk more about that in a, a moment. And it seems to have been an invented language that people have learned as a second language over the last few centuries, and, and really the last four centuries, I guess, and that displaced native languages. But there are still hundreds of native languages spoken. Uh, none of that is spelled out for us. And so it does give us this flexibility to, you know, you can invent a culture for whatever, you know, small town you want to be from, or even just big city that you want to make up that's not on the map that you want to be from. There's a lot of flexibility and, and room there. Uh, there is also one other language that's here that's called Shintok, and this is a uh, a rudimentary language that is used only for commerce. Uh, shin is the currency, so I don't know, it's like dollar talk or 
pound talk or euro talk or something like that. But I, I was wondering why this language exists at all, right? Why do you need this rudimentary language used only for commerce if there is also this universal language of truth that everybody speaks? I, I'm not sure sort of in, even just in thinking of like game mechanics, what that's for, but especially in terms of world building, what that's for. Well, I think the the language of truth is Monty Cook's attempt to use the way that Latin was used maybe in masses or the language of the church, that like everybody sort of belongs to this order of truth. And so Latin has become this, or the truth language has become this common language that people can use if they're from another place or use this other or use another regional language or dialect. But Shintok is clearly an example of the way that pidgin languages are developed. Mm -hmm. And pidgin languages were almost all developed as a part of merchant trade, uh, and of, of mercantilism and trade, because people found ways to communicate traders and, and kind of came up with their own combination of languages that could refer to their goods or wares or travel or whatever they needed to talk about. So I think Shintok is just kind of the pidgin language. And I think it's just a, an attempt to demonstrate that there is diversity of language and the traders are going all over the place and pigeon, a pidgin language has developed. But the core common language that people use who attend whatever the Aeon priests are teaching in their area is what they can really use to communicate broadly with other cultures. And the pidgin language is more for traders or merchants. In terms of game mechanics, I mean, the idea here obviously is to say that, hey, your characters, wherever they might be from, they can be from totally different places. They can all speak to each other, right? That that doesn't have to be a stumbling block the way that it, it would be in any kind of realistic world of of this scope with a lot of linguistic diversity. And, and you're absolutely right to point to the language of truth as being something akin to the way that Latin is used in the Middle Ages. What's weird about it, though, is that people are speaking it, right? That this is actually the spoken language of many of these places, certainly in the big cities, he he tells us. And uh, we should talk about the, the Eon Priests and the Amber Pope. We should talk about that religion. Uh, this is called the Order of Truth, and, and it is a highly organized religious institution that transcends political boundaries. And in that way, it is modeled on the Catholic Church. Uh, we've got the, the Eon Priests and the, the Amber Pope. And, you know, it's, and Monty Cook does do a big thing here about how Pope is not really the title that he uses, right? That he might the Monty Cook is kind of maintaining the fiction that he's translating all of this into our, our English from, you know, some far future language, which, you know, is also the same thing Gene Wolfe does. And so uh, that's a really good move. And he does also tell us that although it looks like a religion to us, it's not really a religion. It's not really about worship or or veneration, that it is really about knowledge and understanding. It is searching for under, it is trying to understand, trying to put together a cosmology of the universe, trying to make sense of what is left of the past and why there's weird magic all over the place and and that sort of thing. And so in that way, it does differ from the medieval Catholic Church, though. There are a lot of ways we'll talk about that in, in a bit. But he does also say that they are starting to act more like a religion, that eon priests are actually starting to give sermons and they are starting to lead devotion and so on because they have discovered that this is a way to further their mission of of acquiring knowledge. So that's one of the ways that this is modeled on the Middle Ages. Uh, we should also talk about class 
here uh, because this is also modeled on the Middle Ages. There's an aristocracy, a peasantry, and there are slaves. And then sometimes uh, a middle or a merchant class is what Monty Cook tells us. And and this really is where I've got some critiques of the world building, really is in the realm here of uh, class and religion, really the, the social organization, because he tells us there are just three classes of people, aristocracy, peasantry, slaves, except that also sometimes there's this middle or merchant class. So maybe it's four or five. But then he goes on to say that most children in this world attend some kind of school until at least age 12. And so as I'm reading this, and this is just, you know, one paragraph to the next, as I'm reading this, I immediately want to know, well, who are the teachers then? Are they slaves, peasants, or aristocrats, or, or, or merchants? And of course, they aren't any of those things, right? But then also, where do the eon priests fit into this, right? They make such a big deal about how this is an important segment of society, but then doesn't put them into this class structure. And the same deal is, right, they don't fit in to this at all. And, and and the point here that I'm trying to raise, right, is that the game is not at all concerned with social organization. It's not concerned with how resources are extracted from the world around us and then allocated to individuals or groups. And then, of course, right, all of the social and institutional apparatus that support that system. And of course, that is what the world is for those of us who are living in a world. But that's not what Monty Cook is doing here. And, and this is fine. I mean, it does annoy me a little bit while I'm reading, but right, this is every RPG manual ever, because what this world is here for is really to be a sandbox for our band of murder hobos. And murder hobos don't really live within the strictures and structures of society anyway. So we don't really need it to be spelled out that much. And so Again, right, he's trying to give us some flexibility here to allow a group of players to make their own interpretations about these things. But I do think that there is a real problem with Cook's conception of Ninth World Society that I think is also a really missed opportunity, and that, which I also think could cause some complications and confusions for adventures. And that is this religion. That is the, the order of truth. Well, we're going to find when we talk about the adventure that there's very little involvement with the Aeon priests in the adventure and that there are other kind of classes of people that the, that the way that even the small towns are organized, they're not overseen by some Lord necessarily, but somebody can rise to power through means that have nothing to do with class. And that's something I think we found in in our critiques of the first uh, core book when we went through the adventures was that the class has almost not no, meaning or the structure of society has almost no meaning in the way that the adventures play out which is fine you and i i think are a little bit more tuned into class as a, as a problem or as a as a point of interest uh than most fantasy or science fiction writers um at least very popular ones but the the uh, general idea and the gist of it is is that you can have a traveling band of mercenaries there are also outcasts like bandits and you can go into a town and the people you meet are purposefully provincial there is somebody in charge of the town who might pay fealty to a lord or a baron or something like that and then there's somebody who has risen to power illegitimately kind of outside of the system so really the, the only reason the system is in place or codified in the core book is to demonstrate to the the players and to motivate them to do the chivalric hero thing, which is to set things back to the right order when they reach a town that's been corrupted by somebody's false rise to power. And it's to give that sort of framework that you can kind of hang the suit of the story on. And and I think that that's the only reason why it's there is to demonstrate what 
the corruption of the order looks like when you encounter it in an adventure in the game. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because you know you had characterized this earlier as an agrarian civilization, which is you know true for all human civilizations, all human societies up until <laughs> about 1850, right? And and that is absolutely what this is here for. But no one is going to play a farmer, or if you are going to play a farmer, you're not going to be farming, right? That's not what the that's not what the story is. You might be a a, a farmer called to action, uh, called to heroic action in some way, but we're not actually going to be engaged in the business of of farming here. The the thing that I do find where I think Monty Cook really missed something that could have been really awesome here is the order of truth, right? I do think that he has one maybe you know gross misunderstanding of medieval religion and medieval religious institutions, though of course most people do, right? Uh, but he but the way that he presents the order of truth is that it is politically powerful, right? It transcends the transcends political boundaries and it has and it and in fact it is often an arbiter of peace and a maintainer of the status quo it's the the reason that uh, people are not establishing empires and that there is some geopolitical stability here or as much as you want to have uh, for your game but the institution is not really very well developed right his concept of this is that the way that the order of truth does this is simply by having the devotion and zeal of adherence, which is not at all how the medieval church had any kind of political power or any kind of power at all. Uh, but this is what Monty Cook puts in the game. But the medieval church was powerful for a variety of reasons or a number of reasons. And one of them was that it, as an institution, had massive land-owning wealth. Uh, also, because it had a history of operating and maintaining city infrastructures during the early Middle Ages. Also, because of holding a monopoly on literacy and especially on the functions that literacy serves. But also because they had a monopoly on religious magic. And so what we get here in this game really is just something like the skin of the medieval Catholic Church, right? It looks like it, but doesn't actually have anything to do in this society, right? If you ask, like, what does an Eon priest do? What is the order of truth for? It's hard to say because they're not running the schools. Uh, they aren't maintaining the aqueducts and the sewer systems. They're not the lawyers. They're not the book publishers. They don't own a third of the land and a third of the agricultural workforce either. And so it just is an institution, a massive institution, a massive organization that doesn't really have any purpose in the world. And I think that's a missed opportunity for gameplay. And that's something we'll talk more about when we look at the characters that we've made as well. Right. It really is a sort of unupholstered couch that you can put <laughs> whatever type of fabric you want on it. And, and then that's really what it's for to maximize the imagination of the players uh, and really the GM who can kind of insert the Aeon Truth as a insert the order of truth as a sort of deus ex machina or a call to action for the characters or a way to motivate the characters to the proper order of the world. And I think that's what a lot of this early world building stuff is for, is to give the characters early on a sense of the world's order so that they know how to set things to right as romantic heroes. And as a result, there are many flaws in the in the world building. I mean, I, I even I struggle to read even the, the kind of short story that is at the beginning of this, though it's something I gather Monty Cook is fairly proud of. Um, I, I don't know if I would read a Numenera novel. And even the even the video game to me had some real issues with this regard as well. But in the core book it is really clear that the Aeon priests Though there might be some interplay with politics 
and power that we would find distasteful for a church to engage with in our society is there to be the arbiters of the world's order. And so you need some sort of framework with which you can say in an adventure game like this, what this person is doing is wrong, and we're here to correct it as adventurers. And in that same vein, it seems very much designed to really just be an order of NPCs who are going to send you on quests, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Exactly. Well, I'm going to talk about the nature or natural or ecological aspects of the world a little bit. I'm not going to go super in-depth because I think if the, you're interested in this game, this is this is probably the fun part of discovery of reading the core book. But there is a vast and rich diversity in ecosystems. There are deserts and forests, mountain regions, caves, all sorts of things, you know, real ecosystems, in other words. But as we've been saying a lot, the world is agrarian, meaning that the resources come from farming and not some industrial intervention or even industrial farming. Animal life still falls into the categories we have today, like mammals, reptiles, insects, birds, etc. Et uh, but these creatures are maybe the descendants of what we think of as like a bird or a cow in the sense that they have met, in the sense that they may have been the product of genetic mutation from a past age or the result of genetic interference via the sciences. Plus, there have been aliens who have left some of their other animals behind as well. Not to mention the fact that some creatures may be of a wholly mechanical nature. So there's this real broad sense of life. And once again, all of this is designed to excite the imagination, to think of, you know, what do, why, if, if we're questioning why humans exist, we should also be questioning like why there's beef. And so like, where <laughs> did all of this come from? It allows you to imagine, you know, what a pack animal might be. Uh, and how that might have changed through people in the past tinkering with genetics or aliens leaving their own pack animals behind. So you get to do a kind of fun Star Wars-y sort of thing where the, the galaxy comes to you. It's not a galaxy far, far away with all these strange creatures. It's really your own setting of Earth with familiar furniture that you can rest upon. Um, one major feature of the Ninth World that I do want to talk about is the weather. And I think this is a core part of the book. And it's something that I think GMs can really use to their advantage if uh, their players are having too easy of a time <laughs> for uh, an adventure that a GM has designed. The, the most dangerous type of weather is the uh, this iron wind, which is essentially a nanoparticle or nanite storm that is full of these nanobots that can transmute the nature and the flesh of any being or landscape that they encounter. And getting caught in one of these storms can totally transform a person or, or any living thing into something unrecognizable. It can even, as I've said, transform the landscape. So the world is constantly being remade through the uncontrollable iron winds, and they are something to be dreaded and feared when they are coming up, though nanites are everywhere. And, and one of the characters we'll talk about, one of the three sort of playable classes we'll talk about is one that is super tuned into these nanites that are everywhere. But when they coalesce into this iron wind, uh, it's time to seek shelter or run. I, I will also say that this game has a fairly robust bestiary, just like you'd find in a D&D core book. And I'm not going to say the names of the actual char like the <laughs> beasts in this game, but what we get in the bestiary in this book are things that are analogous to ghosts 
or broken down machines, mad genetic experiments gone wrong, genuinely wild and dangerous predators and anim- animals. There are succubi and automatons and all of these types of things you might find in your classic fantasy adventure uh, tabletop RPG are rendered into the context of Numenera. So once again, it's leaning on that familiarity, but pushing your imagination to the next level. And it's it's really, really cool. Uh, I recommend getting the core book for some of the descriptions of the the regions and the bestiary and the weather. It's It's really, this stuff is really well thought out. And the art is really fantastic as well. I mean, just flipping through the bestiary section is just a, a big joy. I mean, one of the images that really captured my imagination is the one of the Stratherian war moth, which is just this like mothra looking thing. But the, the text is great. It says, bred for battle in a prior world. These creatures are gigantic moths with pale yellow wings and bodies the color of skulls. And then, you know, goes on to give us all the specs and and all the all the mechanical things you would need to use them in a, in a game. And there's just all sorts of creatures like this. There's a lot of dinosaur looking things a lot of spider looking things there's at least three different types of spiders here there's like metal spiders there are uh, sentient spiders that are essentially humanoids uh, except that they're they're spiders and so on yeah the 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 bestiary part is really awesome and i do think that there is a full on bestiary volume now if you're uh, if you're into that sort of thing yeah, there must be because some of the beasts that are referenced and highlighted as like something you can go find uh, in the adventure that we're going to talk about are not in this core book. I will say the one that really jumped out to me was the Mesomeme, which is uh, a creature that kind of is a crab-like creature that looks under the water, <laughs> that lives under the water, who has these strange, uh, I don't know, tentacles or proboscis or something like that that look like a cluster of other creatures floating above the water. And it's kind of this game's version of a more terrifying creature than an Alzebo in Chief's <laughs> uh, Book of the New Sun. Uh, it's, you know, it says, despite the fact that the severed heads on the tendrils speak, the mesomeme cannot do so, nor can it understand speech. And it's just this horrifying construct that I thought was uh, a nice iteration on Wolf's Alzebo. Yes, that one is absolutely terrifying. There are a number of them that are are really quite creepy and really quite freaky. And going through the bestiaries is, I think, one of my principal joys of looking at role-playing games. Though the principal joy that I get from reading role-playing game manuals, which is a thing that I like to do just for fun, whether or not I'm going to play the game, is the Gazetteer. And there is actually now a full-on volume that is a dedicated Gazetteer, but it is a big chunk of what this volume is. And so we're not going to go through everything, but we are going to turn our attention to what some of the regions are now. Uh, We've said already that Numenera takes place in just one corner of the globe, I guess, and that area is really broken down then into two separate regions. There's the Steadfast, uh, which is a fancy way of saying civilization, and then there is the Beyond, which is the the wilderness zone, uh, though it also has some civilization, has settlements and communities as well. Uh, And uh, we'll try not to call it the Back of Beyond, which is uh, something from Gene (laughs) Wolf. (laughs) So we're going to we're going to take two regions from each two regions from the steadfast and two regions from the the beyond and just go through them. And I'll I'll kick us off here. I'm going to be talking about uh, a region of the steadfast. We'll do that first. So I'm going to be talking about a, a region of the steadfast called Drowless. Drowless is the largest of the nine realms. Uh, it is run by an, an oligarchy. Uh, I guess really it's a, a plutocracy, right? It's one. It's run by wealthy merchants, and it, it does feel 
more than a little bit like medieval Venice, if medieval Venice had been a big territorial state like France or England, rather than the naval commercial empire that it was. And it is home to the largest city in the known world here. This is a city called Qi, that's uh, Q-I, and this is also the seat of the, the Order of Truth. Uh, there is more to Dralis than just the city of Key, but Key is really what I want to focus on. That's why I picked it out here. Uh, it has a population of 500,000 people. So that's about the size that Constantinople would have been during the, the Middle Ages. So you can think about that as well. Uh, and of course, Constantinople, actually part of uh, medieval Venice for a little while. But in any case, Key really is the urban setting in the Steadfast. And so if you are wanting to tell urban stories, this is likely where you're going to want to set those stories. I mean, there are lots of other options, right? Each area, each uh, polity, each state, I guess, has at least one city, if not several cities. But Key is really an order of magnitude bigger than any of those. And so if you are wanting to tell an urban story, uh, something that we might call hard-boiled or noir, something like that, this is where you're going to want to do that. And it has a lot of really cool features in itself. I mean, for one, right, the Order of Truth is headquartered here. So at the heart of the city, there is this papal palace complex that has lots of cool adventure ideas right there. Uh, there's also a map here. It's not super detailed. I bet that the Gazetteer volume has a much more detailed map than we get here, but it is a cool looking map to look at. And interestingly, there is a university that is listed on the map, but then there is nothing at all about it in the text, uh, which I think is cool, right? Just It's just there. You can make it up as a player, as a GM. Uh, and maybe we'll talk more about that when we get to our characters as well. And this is also a city with great like wealth discrepancy, wealth disparity, it's class issues, right? There's lots of wealthy estates, but also lots of slums. So it is a great setting for any kind of hard-boiled or noir story you might want to tell. But, you know, you also might be a great setting for Thieves Guild type stories, right? If you want to lean into the more the fantasy types of, of, of storytelling tropes here. And one other cool thing about the, the city is that uh, the central part of it, I guess where the university is, where the Order of Truth is headquartered, that papal palace, this is patrolled by flying cylindrical automata, uh, and there's a limited supply of these. So that's maybe something of an adventure hook there as well, certainly if you're playing like a Thieves Guild type of story. And of course, adventure hooks are really the thing that we are looking for here, right? Like what types of stories are you going to tell in this world? And uh, the layout of this is really awesome. Money Cook does a really great job here of giving us different ways to have adventure hooks. I mean, besides just sort of reading about the world. And so for each of the, the regions, and this is one of the features that I like most about the, the Gazetteer. So for each of these regions, uh, there's just a, a little box, a little inset thing that gives a list of adventure hooks under two different categories, uh, one called hearsay and one called the weird. Uh, and we've picked one or two highlights from each that we'll, we'll go over for the, the four regions that we're going to talk about here. So under hearsay for Drowless, there's uh, one adventure hook that I thought was really fun uh, called The Deadly Sisters. And this is two women pretending to be noble, uh, or really pretending to be a noble woman and her servant. And they do this in order to gain entrance to people's houses and, and really other types of buildings as well. Uh, but then they murder people and they take their spinal columns. And the question is, why? And also, can they be stopped? And that's a really creepy adventure hook. Uh, there's another one here under hearsay called the insect plague. Uh, this is uh, weird insects that feed on metal that are overtaking some agricultural region. 
the order of truth has a solution and they've hired us, you know, whoever us is to, to do this, but it requires collecting rare parts for a machine that they are constructing. And so that's a, a fetch quest, right? But lots of things could go wrong on that fetch quest. Uh, and those are just two examples under the hearsay section. And then under the weird, there's one that I want to talk about that it's called brain devourer, which is always a great phrase, even though devourer actually quite difficult to say. Uh, but in the countryside, here's what the hook is. In the countryside, there is a large tower. And whenever anyone approaches this tower, it suddenly sprouts bladed tentacles and then decapitates this person who's approaching and siphons out their brains. Uh, so a lot of brain siphoning and spine stealing here. But again, here, right, the question is why? And also, how do you get close enough to find out? And that sounds like an adventure I would like to go on. And we'll find when we talk about the way these adventures are structured, uh, when we go through the adventure offered in the book, that there is a kind of um, formula to the way that Monty Cook is thinking about adventures, like uh, how they can be run in this world. And once you understand that formula, if you're somebody who's really into GMing, you can easily create a streamlined adventure or riff on it in a really interesting way. And, and like I said, it has to do often with abuse of power and the misuse of the Numenera, the, the machines and ciphers and stuff in the world. Well, I'm going to be talking about the region of Navarine, and the Navarine are the people of the kingdom of Navarine, as you might uh, assume. <laughs> and, and these people are exceptionally wealthy and successful compared to their neighboring kingdoms. And as a result, they are the object of scorn uh, by the na neighboring kingdoms and principalities and principalities and they the reason is they are blessed with exceptional natural resources and land resources and they are ruled over by a queen and she oversees the aristocratic families who oversee the wealthy land owners so you have this kind of combination of um the united states mixed with british rule though there's no imperialism here though the queen is desirous to expand the power of though the queen desires to expand the power of her kingdom. She lives in her palace called the Empiternal House in Charmand, which is the capital city. Her name is Armalou, the queen, and she never leaves her sealed chambers. And because of this, she's been able to extend her life artificially to the age of 253. Neverine also borders the northern border of the whole steadfast. And so it has to maintain the military presence on the border because the Amber Pope, the head of the Order of Truth, has declared war against the lands of the North. So you have some real geopolitical stuff. You can you can have your characters have to navigate this militarized zone, essentially, uh, in order to get to an adventure in the beyond. And you can create a campaign of even getting to the beyond through Navarine if you if you want to. Queen Armalou uses this war, this declared war by this high political religious power as a play for power against the other kingdoms of the steadfast. And she's basically petitioning the order of truth or the other kingdoms to get them to pay fealty to her because she's the one who has to pay in order to maintain the militarized border zone. Along the coast of Navarine is, is, called, is a place called the Westwood, and it's a massive forest. Uh, many of the people treat it as haunted, Although the Navarine have been able to tame some of the region to some degree and begun to start a lumber industry by harvesting the massive redwoods that populate the kingdom. And one of the adventure hooks that I really liked was in the Westwood. Uh, it's called the Ghosts of Westwood. It's under hearsay. And it says, 
Even the Kulovas seem terrified of a new strange presence in the Westwood that drives for that drives them from the locale near the southern edge. Lumberjacks say that the green ghosts of the wood have finally begun exacting their revenge on everything they come upon. So you have this major important industry of uh, the wealth of Navarine being disrupted by some ghost and creature, and you have to go into the woods uh, to figure out what's going on. And I love that as a as an adventure hook. I mean, that's a really great campaign uh, because within the Westwood is something called the Golden Sanctum, which is a secret citadel, and it belongs to the secret organization called the Convergence. Very little known is about the Convergence, and even less is known about the Golden Sanctum. So you can see how to merge those ideas to create a fantastic Westwood campaign, if you so want. There are also three major cities in Navarine. There's Charmond, which is the cultural and political capital of the city. It's kind of like Budapest in that it straddles a river. This river is called Jerobost. It's full of monuments and architectural beauty. Uh, there's a place called Badrov, which is kind of the m- militaristic capital. It's easily defended due to the location and the layout of the city. And its natural surroundings include a sort of maze of caves, both artificial and uh, real or natural, that have not yet been completely explored. So you can easily create an adventure where something is getting through the fortifications in the city that's starting in the deep, unexplored sections of the caves. Uh, this place is home to Badrov is home to a place called the vacant Cal- the vacant palace, which is the queen's second palace. This was built by uh, Suter, who was long dead, who was trying to coax her from her chambers. As you know, anybody who's trying to court a woman <laughs> certainly wants her to leave her sealed chambers at least once. Uh, but the suitors of this estate, the the descendants of this suitor still maintain the empty palace as like a second home from the queen that she never visits. And then there's a trade capital in Navarine called Shalamas. Uh, it, It is known as the city of echoes because every once in a while and without warning, the residents of the city can see and hear echoes of the recent past. Uh, And within the city of Shalamas is a criminal organization that is run secretly by the city's ruler mayor or whatever you want to call it so you have a great opportunity for another hard-boiled setting there in shalamis and just a few of the other features is of this landscape of this region this is where the amber monolith is where the amber pope gets his name uh and it is impossible to access because it floats 500 feet above the ground so this is another great final campaign goal to get to the amber monolith to uncover its secrets and there's a twin of the amber monolith called the obelisk of the water god and this one floats above a delta called garethal near the tithe river or to the river um and some people think this is now uh, this is an obsolete weather control system for the garethal region it's maybe millions of years old and dangerous uh, because the area is full of deadly predators, but it also floats, you know, 500 feet, as I said, above this area. And they think there's, and, and people in the region think there might be some odd communication or connection between these two massive monuments. So, and and I'll, I will say that the adventure we're going to talk about is one that is situated in Navarine. So there's, we're going to see a small town adventure play out when we talk about it. Um, there's a lot going on in the region of Navarine. 
I had characterized Drowless as medieval Venice, though probably it's fair to, to say that Monty Cook is drawing on a lot of different experiences in medieval Italy to to come up with Drowless. And Navarine, on the other hand, feels a lot like a fantasy version of medieval France and England. Uh, and in fact, even the name itself suggests that, right? Navarre is a, a real place in northeastern Spain that uh, really was part of the, the orbit of the, the French uh, political state in the in the Middle Ages. And, you know, this business with the forest and so on, right? That's really calling on the, the English medieval tradition of like fairy stories, right? These green ghosts here. I mean, you know, you could be thinking ants or something like that. And so, you know, these are just some of the ways that Monty Cook is drawing on uh, archetypes from our world and maybe specifically from medieval Europe, though he draws on archetypes from other places as well in some of the other regions, and infusing them with this this science fantasy business that I think is really cool. And I think you're right too, Brandon, to point to the way that you could launch like a really big Westwood campaign from this hook here in the hearsay section, the the ghost of the Westwood. You know, as you were suggesting that, I started envisioning like what would be the relationship between these green ghosts of the wood and the the golden sanctum of the uh, convergence here, you know, to think maybe that those are the, I don't know, numinous technological, you know, space, science, fantasy, magic uh, army of the convergence or something like that. And some sort of big geopolitical thing could end up going on at the end of a campaign like that. That would be a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I was certainly thinking more along the lines of Fern Gully, but, uh, (laughs) you know, different strokes for different folks. Well, next we're going to talk about the beyond, which is the, you know, uncivilized northern region of the map that adventures of Numenera take place in. And the thing and the region that I'm going to talk about is called the Cassilian Jungle. And it's a 500 square mile jungle full of all sorts of dangers and adventures you'd expect to find in such a place for such a setting. And there are massive treasure hoards to be found and gods to be discovered and secrets to be known. And what characterizes this jungle are really the five wonders. There's the Temple de Frog, which is a stone temple dedicated to a frog fertility goddess. And this attracts amphibious creatures. The lower levels of it are all overtaken by the swamp, but there are upper levels that uh, have all sorts of technological dangers and marvels. There is the wild garden, which is a which is a garden that is surrounded by a ten foot high electrical fence, and within the garden are curated and cultivated carnivorous plants. Though who curates and cultivates these plants is sort of unknown. Though many think it's the Saracenians who are. Uh, a group of scholars, an obscure group of scholars who worship the plants and the the gardens are their Mecca. But for me, suggesting that the gardens is the Mecca means they're not the gardeners. Uh, and the fact that they worship it means maybe they don't want to pierce the mysteries of it. So I, you know, that's another great way to think about um, an adventure is who are the secret gardeners here of this wild garden and why have they cultivated these carnivorous plants? There's also Archaeol, which is a miniature city. And each building of the city uh, only comes up to a average human's knees. And no one is quite sure what the inhabitants are because nobody's ever seen them. But the city is clearly used by somebody. And people wonder if it's supernatural creatures or machines or tiny humans. 
basically it's like a gnome town or you know if you're <laughs> icelandic um you know it's the hidden elves because you know and it's just it's a cool setting i don't really know what the adventure could be there maybe you need to find uh numenera or ciphers that shrink you in order to go into the city and that could be a cool campaign as well maybe you get stuck stuck as a shrunken version of yourself and the part of the campaign adventure is finding the right tool to make yourself uh, the right size again in order to leave there's the malingering valley which is just a mysterious valley with cold streams i don't know that's just that's the most vague uh, description <laughs> we get of this whole book i think and then there's the West Wind, which is a section of the jungle where the landscape is always shifting. And the size of the West Wind is always changing as well. It's always contracting and expanding. So you can get caught in it and stuck in it in an ever-shrinking sort of sphere. And here I wonder if, if Monty Cook is thinking of, you know, is using this name as a, as a kind of reference to the Gene Wolfe story, West Wind. I wondered that as well. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I'm going to here read one of the weird of uh, the Castilian jungle since I read the hearsay of the Navarine. And here, there's a, a call to adventure here called the Undying Tribe. And it says, a tribe of humans in the jungle lives a savage existence of cannibalism. For reasons unknown, these people do not seem to age past maturity. Their violent lives are often cut short but some have reportedly lived for hundreds of years. So here you have that kind of like children of the corn. Uh, and I wonder if maturity means like 20 something or, you know, they hit the age of puberty and then they stop maturing. I'm not quite sure, but that's something that you can think about and develop. Uh, you can have a creepy cannibal children tribe <laughs> that your <laughs> adventurers have to deal with. And, and that would be a fun uh, one shot adventure, I think. The Temple of the Frog, or Tavla de Frog, if you, if you will. I was taken <laughs> aback by that. I was wondering why there was suddenly French in this world. But, you know, that's just to give us a sense. I guess this temple has a, uh, a name that uh, is not, uh, not in the, the language of truth, I guess. But uh, the Temple of the Frog jumped out to me for a number of reasons, in addition to the, the weird Frenchness of it. Uh, but this is a setting that is set up for just classic dungeon crawl type adventure. And in fact, one of the, the heroes say hooks is called the trapped man and it's exactly what it says right there's someone who's trapped in the the temple uh, held prisoner or something like that and you need to go in and rescue this person so just a, a classic dungeon crawl but this is also clearly an allusion to sathagwa from clark ashton smith right we've encountered sathagwa before uh when we've we've covered some smith stories on elder sign and uh i just thought that was pretty hilarious yeah it is i mean uh, the, the... Monty Cook really knows what he's pulling from and, and deploys his influences to great effect in the world of Numenera. The other thing, and, and maybe the big thing, actually, for me anyway, that's cool about this Kaikilian jungle is that when you look at it on the map, it is a five-pointed star. And not just like maybe looks a little bit like a five-pointed star. It is clearly designed to be a five-pointed star. Someone at some point made this jungle, right? Uh, was it a, a billion years ago? Was it a hundred million years ago? Just one million years ago? We don't know. But somebody designed this. And that, that too is one of the adventure hooks that you could have here. And there are also these uh, seven pyramids that we hear about in the hearsay section and, and, and a number of other things that, that point to this jungle as having some larger purpose or having had some larger purpose in the past. So you could do a really big world-shattering campaign that at least in some part takes place in or is even centered around this jungle. 
it's kind of your Kipling-esque or H. Rider Haggard-esque uh, adventure zone for the secret temples, the lost civilizations, the hidden treasure, the city of gold, whatever sort of, you know, boys adventure tale or 19th century, 19th century colonial adventure story you want to tell, you know, the King Solomon's Mind sort of thing that takes place in a jungle, the Jungle Book, the Lost Ruins. This is the place to hold those adventures. Absolutely. And, and you and I love stories like that. And, and so yeah. I, in fact, for, for the region of the beyond that I want to talk about, I picked the other place where you can do that sort of thing. Well, you could do that sort of thing in any of these regions. But uh, I picked the Black Riage, which is this massive mountain range that separates the steadfast from the beyond. And it's really high peaks, similar to the Himalayas. But there are a handful of passes with settlements uh, or, or weird stuff or, or both. Uh, uh, the main pass contains a small town that is described in fungal terms, and it glows with phosphorescence. The inhabitants of this town are, are sick and at least a little bit insane, or, or maybe they're all just high on like fungal fumes or something, but like real weird, <laughs> real creepy. Uh, but there's also a canyon with a, a small community centered around an ancient statue. And this is a statue of a man holding the sun between his upraised hands. And what is cool about this is that the, the sun is not sculpted. It is actually the sun. But no matter what time of day it is, and no matter where you are standing, the sun always appears to be between his hands. And if it's night, then it's actually the full moon, even if there is no moon in the sky. And this actually all happens even if it's overcast. And this is really cool on its own, but this is quite clearly, right? This has to be a statue of Severian, right? This is an homage to the oh, book of Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely it is. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was awesome. And this is something- I mean, there's also, there's a town here called Druisi as well. I mean, he's, uh, right. Romani Cook is just pulling directly from Wolf Scholarship to, for this region. Yeah, it's really awesome. And and this is one of the things that gets depicted in the art. It looks very cool. So there was no way I was not going to pick this region, even though it was already tugging at me because mountaineering is my number one favorite pastime. And I wanted to, you know, reading this book, I was looking for where are the wilderness adventures. And yeah, the jungle and the mountain range really seem to be it. There are some really good hooks here, too. Uh, in the hearsay section, we get one called Roots of the Mountain. Uh, this is a, a subterranean community of abhumans. I mean, they're not called Morlocks, but probably they're Morlocks. They they don't ever leave, <laughs> but they're extremely hostile to intruders. And the the hearsay suggests that they possess some kind of powerful device, right? So this is going to be a dungeon crawl adventure as well, but it's a cave. So you've got the abhumans, maybe other sorts of creatures you might encounter there. Uh, there's another hook here in Hearsay called Rock Slide. This is pretty standard, right? A rock slide has stranded a village. You need to get food to them. But how are you going to do that? Uh, there doesn't have to be anything about the ancient devices or weird fantasy stuff going on for me to want to run that adventure. Like, I just want to I just want to role play mountain climbing, you know, from my, uh, right. uh, my, my low, almost below sea level East Coast <laughs> abode. And then there's another hook in the weird that I, I think is worth bringing up here, which is called Mystic alignment. And this is actually similar to the idea of the, the jungle being designed, clearly designed as a five-pointed star. Here, this weird bit called mystical alignment is that the northern peaks of the Black Riage do not precisely correspond with the positions of the stars, but in 23 years, they will. So watch out, right? I don't know what the reason for that is, but something is going to happen in 23 years, and that's a pretty cool hook. Yeah, it's great. I mean, there's so many great adventure hooks uh, in here that uh, are just worth digging into if, if GMing is your thing. 
We actually want to get into thinking about who are the characters in these stories. We've been talking about the hooks a lot, and we're going to do some more of that when we look at the adventure. But we want to talk about the characters here who are going to be going on these types of stories. Before we get there, though, we should maybe a little more broadly uh, sum up the sorts of adventures that and, and hooks that we've been talking about, right? It's pretty clear that this is a story about discovery. And you, you emphasized that when you were talking about the, the video game, Brandon, the, the video game adaptation of this as well. And I had actually called the characters that we would play murder hobos earlier. And that is definitely what Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> is. You are a band of murder hobos. But I'm not sure that that's really quite true here for Numenera. I think you could play the game that way if you wanted to. But it is really designed for you to be encountering weird stuff, uh, to be encountering the Numenera, which is really the the, the word, the sort of made-up Latin-style word for the detritus, uh, the technological detritus of these civilizations that may as well be magic. And that that's really... What what it's organized around is exploration and discovery, but also, as you point out, Brandon, of wandering around and setting things right, right? Solving the problems that are caused by either accidentally or intentionally releasing or unleashing the Numenera on the world. That's a big part of what the the story system is going to be about. And so we're supposed to build characters that can work with that type of storytelling. And we have both built characters. So we're going to talk about these a little bit and we'll get into the character creation a little bit here, but we're not going to talk too much about the actual mechanics. But the way that this works is that to build out your character, there are three elements that you have to define. One is your character type, one is your character focus, and one is your character descriptor. And we'll just go through this. You'll, you'll, you'll figure out what this is as we go, even if you've never looked at the Numenera, even if you've never looked at the Numenera book before. The central one, and it is actually the, the central one here, is character type. And this really corresponds with what's normally called class and role-playing games. So, uh, Brandon, just maybe walk us through what character type you picked and why. Well, I picked the character type of Jack. Uh, so there are three. There's the Glaive, the Jack, and the Nano. And they roughly map onto the uh, Warrior, the Wizard, and the Rogue. <clears throat> and the Jack is the roguelike character. And I always pick those roguelike characters in role-playing games uh Primarily because I, I think they're the most balanced class you can usually find. I can do the most sorts of things. And they're like Batman. You can augment yourself with either <laughs> having one money and purchasing stuff or uh, being able to figure things out. So my my character was a jack. Um, uh, you know, in World of Warcraft, which I play only occasionally, I uh, always try to find the most balanced character classes because I like to play by myself. But like Jack, Jack is a character in this game that is the in my for my money the most balanced character class. So so that's why I picked Jack. I liked the backgrounds of the Jack the best, which which I think we'll be reading our backgrounds, our character backgrounds. Uh, but I also like the way you could customize them for the type of adventures you want to play without being limited by uh, the ability to hit stuff real good and have good <laughs> armor too, or to have to use magic to solve problems. So uh, for me, character balance and flexibility and play style, I find that Jack in this game is what appealed to me the most. What what did you pick, Len? 
Yeah, I should I should have said at the top that uh, I did tell the uh, the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode that there's every chance that you and I have made the exact same character. But yeah, I also made a Jack, though I did strongly consider making a Glaive this time. But like you, I always play some kind of rogue character, either, you know, if it's D&D, it's either a thief or more usually a, a bard. I like the variety, but also... Rogue characters are just more akin to the type of person that I am in the real world, uh, but also maybe more akin to the types of stories that I am interested in. I have no, I have never had any interest in playing any kind of spellcaster or wizard or mage in any role playing game I have ever played. Uh, that has just never appealed to me. And so the the nano class here uh, just didn't do anything for me. That was not something I was going to be interested in. I don't want to manage spells. I don't want to manage a spell list. And I don't really want to be uh, fighting bad guys with spells. But I did think about making the glaive, which is the, the fighter class or the, the warrior class here, because this character that I've made here... I wanted to ha- I wanted to be a sort of wilderness adventure character, right? And that requires some some ruggedness, some some physicality, and that is definitely what the glaive character class is. But when you get into the the real mechanics of the glaive character class, like what sorts of special abilities you get as a glaive, they are really all about martial arts, and that was not the type of physicality I wanted for my character. I wanted mountain climbing and uh, tent pitching and hunting and land navigation not so much fighting exactly and and that's what i like about the jack is that you can ex- really explore safely or at least without expending effort which is one of the mechanics of the games and that really for me makes for a good adventure to not be bogged down by rolling every time i want to peek my head inside of a cave um to just be able to bypass some of the mechanics continue to tell the story and then struggle with the stuff that I would find it meaningful for a character in this world to struggle with, which is the mysterious technology, which is encountering the uh, char- the the bestiary and having to use wits or dexterity to outperform the the mechanical creatures or uh, biological creatures you come across in in the game. Right. Well, the next thing that we should talk about, and, and maybe the next thing that you do when you're making your character, is to pick what is called a focus here. I and mean, really what this is, is what does your character do, right? Okay, so we've each made a jack, but what does our jack actually do in the world? And and this is not just something you make up willy-nilly, though, of course, you could do that as well. But there are a list of these things that come with different types of special abilities and starting equipment and so on. So which did you pick, Brandon? What focus did you pick? So the focus for my Jack was one who explores dark spaces. Like I said, the the real joy of this game was exploration. And so I wanted my Jack to get into adventures where he was exploring these dark caves, these towers, the dark rooms in the towers and things like that. Uh, and so that was my that was my character focus, explores dark places what was yours glenn would you like to guess was it explores dark places was it what was it <laughs> <laughs> it was explores dark places yes we have made the same character uh, but uh, uh, we'll find out that's There's... why we had to when we played the game we had to make multiple characters because you would undoubtedly be the same <laughs> yeah. so we had to make different character classes that's right but we there's still one third of the character generation process left to do and uh, we'll see if we differ there but we should talk about what some of the other options are here and uh, you know I wanted to do explore dark places as well because I also wanted to be someone who was into the 
exploration of the the world. I mean, that's something you and I are both into. And and I really had in mind a character who could do the Kaikilian jungle and do the Black Riage to be looking for lost civilizations, to want to get into the Temple of the Frog, not to rescue anybody, but to find cool stuff, uh, just to see what it's like. That was the character that I was trying to create here, a kind of Indiana Jones type character, really. But we should talk about some of the, the other options here. I mean, there are a lot of them. And in fact, I did consider another one because I was envisioning my character as living out in the wilderness, as doing this sort of wilderness exploration, uh, not so much exploring dark places in the steadfast, but exploring dark places in the beyond and being someone who's doing a lot of long distance backpacking, a lot of pitching of tents, a lot of hunting for food. And so there is a focus called Lives in the Wilderness. And this one I considered very much because this gives you abilities to do things like live off the land and to have uh, a hardiness while you are out there. And at later levels, you get all sorts of cool things like uh, being able to hang out with animals and so on. And it was really the differences at the later levels that nudged me back to explore dark places because I didn't want to be a beastmaster. I didn't want to be a ranger, right? I wanted to be a rogue. And what I wanted were like climbing skills. And those are the things you get with explores dark places. Right. I think other foci, if you were a jack that you might pick, would be like speaks with a silver tongue or works in the back alleys or entertains. Like these are the sorts of classes you might do with the focus you might do with a jack. But there's other clear foci for other classes like the nano or the glaive, like controls gravity, crafts illusions, masters defense, masters weaponry. So there's probably 20 foci here, all with their own description in the guide that tell you where you get to with higher classes. So when you're creating a character, you can really take your time and play out where do I want to be in the third adventure of this campaign and what do I think I'll need and build the foci out of that. It's it's very complete and very robust system. And you can do some things that even really reshape the physicality of your character, right? You can pick fuses, flesh, and steel if you want to be a type of cyborg or, or some type of cybernetic person. Uh, and that's very cool. Uh, you've got uh, talks with machines as a focus here, which you could do a number of things with that. You could be some really great engineer. You could actually be the type of explorer character that we've been talking about with that as well. But like that's your specialty is that uh, you're the member of the party who can figure out what the machines are for once you find them, for example. So there, there are lots of ways you can be flexible with these things. And that's really a part of the nano class. I think any good campaign is going to have at least a jack and a, and a nano. But if it's going to be a fighting campaign, you need a glaive as well, at least. But the nano, for instance, have ports and plugs on their body, or some of them can choose to, where they can plug into various machines. And they also have powers like psionics that allow you to control the invisible Numenera that permeate the world and the casting spells and stuff like that is really controlling the invisible nanites around you. So the way that the magic system works here is super cool if you're into that because you're really controlling secret and invisible technology. I like that you say that the glaive is the is, is, is dispensable, that you might not necessarily need one, but you definitely want a jacket, definitely want a nano. I think that is the way we play. Well, if our, our jacks are uh, are out exploring together, I mean, our fighting strategy will just be run away, run away, run away, and that'll work <laughs> exactly. just fine. Well, there's a, a third component to the character generation, which is a, a descriptor. Uh, and this is just an adjective that you put at the beginning, right? So, so far, Brandon and I have both made a jack who <laughs> explores dark places, but we might... 
uh, might maybe have picked different descriptors to put in front. And these are just descriptive adjectives, so you can be charming or clever or something like that. But again, you don't just pick them out of the dictionary. These are specific things in the game that come with different abilities and starting equipment and so on. So which descriptor did you pick, Brandon? Well, to really try to achieve the maximum balance with the Jack character, I picked the mystical and mechanical uh descriptor i don't know if you did the same i did not i, not, I did but, not so good, totally different God, characters. one thing is different um but but i like i said when i'm building a character for a game like this i really want balance i want to be able to do a little of everything and the mystical mechanical jack has some elements of the nano um so you add two to your intellect pool as a benefit uh you are trained in all actions involving understanding numenera which is super important in this game you can sense magic or active technology in the world uh you can per- perform you know hedge magic and spells and things like that on a small level so for me that was the most balanced with the climbing uh explore dark places um to balance this character out i did mystical mechanical what did you pick so in keeping with my idea of having a character who's backpacking around the, I don't know, the Yorkshire Dales or the Lake District uh, looking for Roman hill forts or something like that, I, I was looking <laughs> at, at two here. I was initially, I was I was considering rugged, right, to, to really be able to, to get some of those physical traits that are maybe missing from the Jack, uh, especially since I didn't take Lives in the Wilderness as my focus. But ultimately, I went with Learned because that bestowed the types of benefits that I wanted. This also gives you extra points to your intellect pool, and it gives you skills in three areas of knowledge of your choice. And that was really what I wanted here. As I was looking through these descriptors, I really zoomed in on what is my character or who is my character, right? What, who does he work for? Why is he out doing these things? And I really started to think of my character as a professional scholar of some sort. Uh, I don't know if he works at this university that's on the map in Key, or maybe, and I think this is actually what I would prefer, that he's a part of the or of truth in some way, something like uh, in a monastic order, maybe something akin to a Jesuit or maybe a Franciscan, someone who is out exploring and looking for artifacts, looking for other cultures, doing a bit of archaeology and anthropology, really a sort of jack of all scholars, uh, a jack of all scholarships, I suppose, uh, is what I wanted. So I wanted someone who was affiliated with formal scholarship in some way. So I went with learned there. Yeah, that's a great choice, though. I think that this would be an imbalanced party at this point, because I think we would need a rugged uh, a rugged jack to balance out the uh, use of all the classes, but using the jack to kind of being able to do battle well, to do a little magic, and then to also be able to uncover the history, the anthropology of the world, too. Uh, we would need a third party member, to be sure, to, to, to perform an adventure. <laughs> yeah, I think, you, I think you always want three. Well, these descriptors also come with some negatives, some some inabilities as well. The, the one for learned is is having uh, poor social skills, which, you know, as an academic, that offended me. I, I, I think I have people skills, you know, <laughs> like to think I do. Uh, but, uh, but they all have some limitations. I didn't see what the one was for yours, Brandon. It is uh, probably something that's actually more like my real life presence to to many people. You have a manner or an aura that others find a bit unnerving. <laughs> any task involving char, any task involving charm, persuasion, or deception is hindered. Uh, that's a little too close to home, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Well, those are the same penalties that you get for learned. So yeah, we we yeah. we are not a well-rounded party <laughs> at all. Well, we're gonna we're gonna turn to talking about the adventure now, and uh, we'll actually we'll try to fit our characters our. Uh, totally the same character adventure uh, party uh, into this adventure. But there are three adventures that come in the the core book, and they're at varying levels. We're going to do the introductory adventure, which is called Taker of Sorrow. And this is completely an introductory adventure, right? It gives new GMs and new players a chance to feel things out, right? To learn the game, learn the world, uh, maybe even learn how to roleplay at all, right? This could be someone's first roleplaying adventure just fine. Uh, and it would actually serve really well for that purpose. And what we're going to do here is we're going to look at the the setting of the adventure, uh, the premise, and and the possible adventure hooks, uh, really the possible adventure hooks for our characters, I think. Uh, what we're not going to do, though, is go through the plot points and the encounters, though we would love to do that sort of thing in the future, uh, like to actually treat an adventure, maybe a, an adventure that's a little bigger than this one is, but to treat a specific RPG adventure as uh, a story, I think would be a really fun thing to do uh, for an episode in the future. So let's start with the the setting and the premise here. Uh, as Brandon said, this takes place in Navarine. It's in the wilds of Navarine, really actually up near the the mountains, near the Black Riage. And it is in the town of Graham, which is nestled against the metallic cliff face of Enagram Mountain, where some of the the hollows and shallow caves have been converted into dwelling places that really supply uh, part of the town. And then there are a lot of deeper caves in this mountain, but they have been largely unexplored. And of course, we know right away, because it has a metallic cliff face, we know right away that this is no mountain, and that that is going to be the source of the weirdness on the adventure. And there's a monastery in the town, and it doesn't seem to have any affiliation with the Order of Truth, right? It's a it's a separate, independent religious community. So there is, as Brandon was saying earlier, a lot of room here, a lot of flexibility for having different types of religions and different types of religious institutions. This... And this monastery has done some exploring of the caves in this mountain, uh, this mountain that isn't actually a mountain, and they have found a Numenera artifact that mystically removes sorrow from people, uh, hence the Taker of Sorrow, which is you know, the name of this machine, but also the name of this adventure. And all of that sounds great, right? I mean, I, they don't know how it works. They don't know what side effects it might have, but it's awesome. It takes away your pain. I mean, that's not actually the phrase they use because they didn't want to get sued by Star Trek, but it takes away your pain <laughs> and it becomes a sort of healing relic that people come here for. So this has become a kind of um, a shrine, a sort of pilgrimage site. Okay, but that is not the plot. The The plot is that about 10 years ago, one of the monks decided to tinker with this device, to tweak it a little bit. And what he did was get it to make people really, really, really like him, to associate him with the good feeling that the device bestows on them. And what he was trying to do was to build a cult of personality. And he succeeded, right? The order loves him. The townspeople love him as well. But of course, if you have this type of power, there's going to be some sort of catch. And the catch is that some of the people who use the device now uh, turn into what are called babble mites. And what happens is that the, the person's body will split into uh, 10, maybe a dozen parts, each of them its own unique grotesquery, uh, maybe like a mouth with feet, you know, that, that sort of thing. But they also all still share a consciousness. The, the thing, the, the babble mite or babble mites, I guess, it's not human anymore, but it is still sentient. And it's this kind of one creature in multiple parts that is no longer the person it once was. And they hum and they howl. Uh, and also, 
they hunt people. So it's it's a real problem, right? It's not just that like <laughs> someone has died, someone has been murdered. The the thing they have transformed into is terrorizing people. And now there are a lot of them. And so it's a real problem. And it's also a real problem because the, the monk is able to cover this up and he just keeps making more of these things. And obviously the story is going to be our characters putting an end to this, right? Getting a hold of the taker of sorrow and either disabling or destroying it. And then, you know, maybe if we can also restore storing the Babelmites to the people that they once were, and then also, maybe, if we can, or in, are interested in it, maybe we wouldn't be, but interested, but, but maybe also bringing this monk to some kind of, of justice. And this is a pretty good setup, I think, right? I, I want to play this adventure. It is great. And I would say, if you are GMing this game, and, and you are uh, the first person who's going to GM an adventure or a campaign for a new group of players... I would have them not listen to this portion of the uh, podcast, which we should have said earlier, or not read the adventure in the book, because if they end, if your adventurers end up killing these Babel mites, when you get to the end of the adventure and you disable or destroy the machine, really regard or or are able to repair it, regardless of what you do, the remaining Babel mites turn back into their people, and so. It, turn back into their like original form, their original human form and are restored to being a person again. And I think that adds a, a kind of heavy cost and, and teaches you to think about the actions you take as you're playing the game. Should you just kill the bad guys willy nilly? Is there another way to solve the problem without killing? Um, because when you realize that you've killed people, you could have saved in order to achieve the end of the adventure a way a good way of gming the game would be to kind of lay the cost on that maybe you can take some of the treasure or money that you earn at the game and force the characters to donate it to the monastery for the lives that they've taken or do something to kind of handicap the difficulty of the next adventure that they go on in some way they can't buy as much gear and kind of be able to continue to add obstacles for your campaign through the decisions that the characters make and i and i really like the way and i think a lot of these adventures that we played uh, in the past edition have this kind of cost built into the uh, way that the adventure plays out and that's that's another aspect of Numenera that I think really differs from D&D &D is that there there is a toll that is taken on the adventurers, a cost for resolving all issues with violence. Right, because there is a, a weird fiction element to this world as well. I mean, we've been pointing, we've been playing it up in, in its fantastical terms, right? But there's a weirdness to this world that is going to take a toll on people that's going to cause some some trauma to people and you are on this adventure almost certainly going to kill some babylonites it's going to be almost impossible to do it because you do not know that they are people right this is you're this is something that you are going to discover during the course of the adventure and so before you discover that you are going to have to be defending yourself from babylonites and that's actually how the how the adventure the call to adventure happens we'll talk about that in a minute and so to be able to role play out what how, how you react to the discovery that you killed innocent people people who were religious pilgrims who came to this town to be healed of some kind of sorrow that they had uh, some kind of tragedy that's happened to them i mean you're thinking of like widows and widowers uh, people who have uh, parents who have lost uh, children uh, people who are sick something like that right the, that's these are the type of people who are, you have turned into 
what you're going to be regarding as monsters, and you are going to have killed some of them before you find out that they are actually people. And and that's a real serious story. Like there's some gravitas to that story if you as a GM want to emphasize that part of it. Absolutely. And I think, as I said, all the adventures have that element to it. If you're a GM who's interested in highlighting the weird elements and the cost of people abusing power uh, in this story and people abusing technology to their own advantage and how there's a cost to setting that right, uh, which is maybe an element of our real world today. You can really emphasize that as a storyteller. Well, let's talk about the the hook for this adventure, the, the call to adventure, because the adventure has a hook that is built in. Uh, so let's talk about that. And then actually, let's talk about how we would get our characters here. So the, the hook that is is built in is that the player characters have some kind of legal obligation to help uh, an NPC or, or GMC, if you prefer, a non-player character or a GM character on his journey to a town that is near to Graham. And then it's along the way that we're all going to get sucked into the adventure. And, and, and first by dealing with a pack of attacking Babelmites and maybe helping out some farmers who've been displaced by Babelmites. And then you learn more and then you get curious. And and this seems to be the the, the place where you almost certainly are going to end up killing some some babble mites during this part of the in, encounter because you're thrown into the middle of a violent situation and have to defend yourself and help these farmers. And then if you know we do this and just say like, well, that was that was crazy, but we're in the town that uh, our boss wants us to to be in. We we did it and don't actually get curious about what the babble mites are or what's going on around here. Or if you just get stuck, then this NPC who is the the boss of the the player characters is just going to order the player characters to hit the next plot point. And so this is one of the devices that's really built in for uh, novice uh, game masters or just people who are new to this game and just want to try it out on an adventure that you can do in one night, that there are these built-in movements to get from plot point to plot point. But the, the idea here, right, is that it's an accident that we get drawn into the story while we're actually trying to do something else, which I think can work just fine. That's a great way to get people into an adventure. But I do think, Brandon, that we could also make up our own hook for our characters who are almost identical. <laughs> well, I think the the benefit of this call to adventure for inexperienced players is that you have NPCs that are part of your party that can essentially add buffs to your party, like they can heal during attacks or whatever, this you know divine next character. Um, they don't help in combat, but they can help in terms of fighting, but they can help heal during combat and they help, you're there as kind of this larger caravan of people that are all part of this shin obligation. So uh, an, a young GM, an inexperienced GM can use the other non-player characters that are already a part of your party to help motivate the action and move it along. Even as you said, overtake the adventure with one of these NPCs who is the kind of de facto leader of the group. And I think that that's a, a smart way to start people on a campaign or an adventure to get them used to making the sorts of decisions you want them to make, to engineer the decisions that a GM has to cause his player characters to make during the course of an adventure. So it, it provides that opportunity for the GM to craft good engineered decision points and the player characters to get to know what those points are and where they should go. So I, you know, as a start adventure, I do think that that is helpful for people who are really inexperienced with either GMing or 
um, role playing as characters in a, in a larger world. Absolutely. Though I do not think it works very well for the character that I conceived, right? The character that I conceived is someone who has a job in the world. And so I would want to use that as being the call to adventure. We didn't really talk about the, the background of your character, Brandon. Why don't, we, why don't we do that here and then figure out how you and I are going on this adventure together? Well, one of the great things about creating a character is in this game or rolling a character is that you do have to roll for background decisions of who your character is. And then you also have to decide how they're connected to other people in the party that you're playing with. So I, you know, I, I wrote like a paragraph of background. I think we all did when, when we wrote these characters. So uh, I wrote this background. My character's name was Jacob. I said, Jacob was born into an aristocratic family that owned land in southern Navarine. As the third one, he, as the third son, he was raised to fill, he was raised to fulfill the expectation of joining the Order of Truth. While spending time in the archives, he discovered forgotten ancient texts about the old gods. The teaching in these texts and what they promised appealed to Jacob. He escaped the order to explore Numenera and seek contact with the old gods. He attempted many mystical practices in order to force a connection with the old gods while continuing, while continuing to explore for more information and connections to the ancient past. He never felt he gained any ground, and the mission he started years ago was foolish. Jacob blames the generational practice of genetic manipulation for his inability to feel connected to old gods who, from the scant information he's found, interacted with more primitive but genetically pure humans. Through his travels, he's made many contacts throughout the Steadfast and no longer calls any city his home. Recently, he has begun asking old contacts for any work uh, in order to start making money to reintegrate himself into society because he's failed and adventuring is the only talent he has left. And then the other player character gets in touch and says, I have this adventure. So that's the way that uh, my character is motivated, not through this odd shin obligation that uh, Monty Cook has kind of put in this adventure. But you can tweak, if your characters are good at imagining their backgrounds, you can ask them to find their own way to negotiate why they would get into adventuring that doesn't have to do with this term of service that Monty Cook has essentially put into this adventure. Um, and I think you and I would, would avoid that kind of taking of coin just to do good because our jacks are rogues and they don't just take coin to do good. They take coin to make money. Um, so that is uh, that is the background for my character. Yeah. So, so there's a clear connection for, for us here, right? If I have envisioned a character who is uh, a member of some sort of religious order or maybe as a professor at the university or something like that, someone who has a you know salaried position to be going out and doing excavations or just treasure hunting or whatever... I'm out on some mission, right? I'm, I've got someplace I'm going, and, and because we need to get up against the, the Black Riage here, why don't we just say I'm on my way from Key, the, the big city of Key, to the beyond. We need to go through the—I I want to go through the Central Pass in the Black Riage to, I don't know, maybe get to the jungle or something like that. And I have hired you to come with me. Right to 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 be with me on the, as part of a a team here, and we're we don't and so I don't think we need this NPC character. It can just be the two of us. We're on our way, and then we get 
waylaid by these farmers and the Babelmites, and that's how we get into the adventure. And because we are people who are curious about things, and uh, maybe because, and, may, and maybe if I'm a member of the Order of Truth, I might feel like I've got some moral obligation to stop and help. It might be something like that. So we'll stop and we'll have a we'll have a side quest before we get on with the actual campaign, which is to you know go to the Temple of the Frog or whatever. Right, exactly. And and as I said, like my character has cultivated all of these contacts because he's for the past many years try had try, has tried to um pursue his own research and has failed. And so now he's just taking mercenary work basically. But he prefers the type of work that involves something that's adjacent to his own studies. And you reaching out and saying, I have this thing I wanna explore and I can pay you is my character's motivation for getting involved in anything because he's uh, squandered his wealth and talents in order to pursue uh, an impractical quest at the behest of ancient texts, which let me just say, that is the character archetype of every adventure story that I tried to write. Yeah, right. I mean, we made characters who are more or less people we have written in stories. And in fact, when we were playing this game initially, and I did make multiple characters, I just picked three different characters from stories and converted them to Numenera characters. And uh, I don't remember which one I wound up playing, but I think we did let you play this character. So I must have wound up playing the Glaive character. But uh, I don't know. That's a story for another time. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, now that we've talked about kind of how a way to modify this adventure for your own playing group and you don't have to go by the text, you know, and and hopefully set you up as listeners or people interested in getting started in role-playing games who are, or people who are already interested in it to check out Numenera, that's a good place for us to end this episode. So that's going to do it for this episode. And, and I just want to say thanks, Glenn, for having me on the show to talk about Numenera. It, it was kind of great to talk about the, the last time we were actually able to play a role-playing game and revisit the ways in which Monty Cook has updated Numenera. And I had a really good time. So thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And of course, thank you so much to the Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode, who uh, who got the band together. I mean, that was the adventure hook for us was that we uh, we got commissioned to, to do this. Uh, hopefully didn't get distracted by too many side quests as we walked through Numenera here today. Well, as always, you can find me and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com, including the two that I host with Brandon, which are Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast, and the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at GLMcDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. And if you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own, you can contact us there on Twitter, or you can find our email on the website. And I would love to be doing more commissioned episodes for ATOS, and I think we would also love to be doing more with role-playing games across the network on ATOS, on Elder Sign, wherever it might be appropriate. I mean, hey, there is a Star Trek role-playing game, too. And if you would like to support the network more generally, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. So next time, we really will be reading Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 